Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I just had a rant before, but I feel much better. <laughs> just, just had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Welcome to episode three of Whoa. Murder in the Land of Oz. Oh my gosh. Um, thank you so much to everybody so far that listened to episode yes, the one and two. Yes, response has been amazing. It's been and way better than we thought Way better than we thought. Way better than... Not only did both of our mums listen, a whole bunch of Whoa. other people did too. Yeah, we'll get Zane to tell us those numbers after the show so we can freak out, but not on mic. So, but yes, thank you so much for everybody's response to um, us telling the story of Alison Bate and Clay. Um, we started out with probably the the worst one, easy. So, <laughs> not in terms of like which murder was the worst because they were all pretty horrible. It was but in just terms the of hardest. like the hardest, yeah, for sure. Um, so tonight we have a bit of vintage Brisbane murder for you. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, we've got a lot of vintage murders this we season. We do. I didn't realise yeah. how vintage we got, but. Very vintage. Very vintage. Ah, oh, nice. Nostalgia. 1862 vintage. I'm making a wine metaphor. It's not working. Yeah, it's not working. But that's okay. I don't know enough about wine. So, hands up if you've ever been to Queen Street Mall. Thousands of emos from 2007. Did also you just outside Hungry Jacks? Did you get a frozen Coke? Did you do that? Did you go to Lush? I do that because I work in I work in the city. But yes, so Queen Street Mall. It is pretty much like the hub of Brisbane. I had say it's Brisbane's Times Square, but one million times, times less. Yeah, it's like bit shit. Um, so Queen Street Mall. It wasn't as it it didn't used to be a mall. It basically was a street. It was, it was Queen street. street. So um, we are going back. Going way back. We're going back to 1947. So, where are we? Brisbane, 1947. It's like still country town. Wet fucking hell, Ellen. I just dropped my We're book. Trying to podcast. And I scared the cat. <laughs> oh yeah, we go to we got a special guest tonight. That's Fifi, the podcast cat. She's real cute. Anyway, before Ellen rudely interrupted me. I'm so sorry. So I'm never going to climb out of this hole. So we're two years out from World War II and the world in general has just kind of hit a slump after the Second World War. There's not a lot of money around. There's a lot of people that are dead because of the World War II. It's true though. It's putting it very cavalierly but, like, but it is you, um, true. But like us – at the age we're at now, so 24, 25, 
us, our age group in World War II, like so many of our friends would have been killed. Yeah. Or never the same because of what they experienced. Yes. Um, and yeah, so that was Brisbane for you. It was like, it's still, and I mean, today it is still kind of like a country town, but yeah, we have grown quite a bit. That kind of post-war era was really when Brisbane earned its big country town vibe because it was populous enough to be a city, but mm. also, you know. You still talk to your neighbours and exactly, you were And you were still like a day's carriage ride or whatever. From carriages in 1947. I don't know. But I don't yeah. know a lot about the past. But. So um, for those that aren't familiar with Queen Street, um, so Queen Street is the city's central road. Um, it is now a pedestrian mall called Queen Street Mall. That ends at Victoria Bridge and it's bounded um, by two of the Brisbane River's central reaches. Um, so the uptown part of the mall is George Street. So then parallel is Elizabeth Street and then you've got Adelaide Street. Fun fact. I work on Adelaide Street. Woo. Fun fact, I used to work on Queen Street. You did. Oh, my gosh. So a um, bit of history. So 1842 and the Free Settlement, Queen Street was originally a track leading from the main section of the early Morton Bay penal colony, crossing a stream known as Wheat Creek with a deviation going up to the windmill. In early 1840, a surveyor named Dixon drew up a survey for the central Brisbane streets with all streets 66 feet, a.k.a. 20 metres wide. Um, so, uh, uh, September 1864, I didn't know this. There was like a massive fire. Did you know about that? It destroyed 14 shops on Queen Street. So, um, this later became Bullock's fire, Bullcock? Cock. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I needed that. I really needed to cheer myself up. Bullcock's fire. Well, I'm glad you could do it so easily. Mm. Um, so in 1902, part of Queen Street was not paved or sealed, although stormwater drainage was well maintained, which is good to know. Thank God. I've been so worried about the 19th century (laughs) stormwater drainage of Queen Street. Wouldn't that be? Now I can finally sleep at night knowing that it was well maintained. So Queen Street is historically significant as it contains MacArthur Central, which is now where Big W and, uh, Woolworths is. Um, So that was the building in which the American general Douglas MacArthur had his Southwest Pacific headquarters. And there's a museum there that you can go and see. What? Yeah. Oh, my God. Right up the top. Found that out. Thanks, great day out. You guys are killing it. Plug. So in on Albert Street, basically, which is um, now, as we know it, the corner entrance of the mall on Adelaide Street. No, that's not Albert. Is that Albert? Mm. Yeah, that's Albert. Good. Um, Basically, there was an arcade on that corner. It was called the Wallace Bishop Arcade. And I have very vague memories of my father talking to me about this place. But I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not listening. I'm 11. Bye. But yeah, there was an arcade there. So there was like a lolly shop. There was a, um, a dentist. There was Baths, which was Brisbane Associated, Associated Friendly, Friendly Society. Society. Forgot the A word. Um, and there was a murder there. Wow. Which I didn't know about until I heard about this book that I have in front of me. And it's called Lingering Doubts by Deb Drummond and Janice Tunis. And it is about their grandfather, Reginald Brown, who was tried and convicted for the murder of Bronya Armstrong. So Bronya is the 
uh, murder victim that we'll be looking in tonight's episode. So, Ellen, would you like to give us a little rundown of Bronya? Yes. Bronya Mary Armstrong was born on May 26, 1927. She was the daughter of William and Vanda and sister to Bill and Albert. She was a very popular, outgoing young woman with lots of friends and quite a few gentlemen admirers. Get a girl. Get a girl. In January 1947, age 19, she was working as a typist at a doctor's surgery operated under the Brisbane Associated Friendly Society. Um, So basically a friendly society is like an organization where members pay a small fee and then they basically get to claim discounts on medicine and doctors visits and stuff like that. Kind of like insurance. Health insurance. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, but I read the entire book without Googling what a friendly society was. Yeah, and I, I was had so no I was so confused because I was like, Dr. Surgery and yeah. friendliness. I was like, what's going on here? Yeah, so basically that's what you do. Mm. Um, she lived the majority of her life in Brisbane's Inner West. She attended Ironside State School in St. Lucia. Fun fact, so did Jason's cousins. They went to Ironside. Very interesting. Lol. Um, as a child, Bronya and the other neighborhood children spent a lot of time outdoors playing in the then clean waters of the Brisbane River. Then clean. Yes, emphasis. It's not clean emphasis important. Now. After primary school, Bronya and her close friend Norma Dobson attended the State Commercial High School for Girls in George Street, Brisbane. She was very friendly with the Brown family and knew Reg's son Ian as he attended the neighboring State Industrial High School. They also lived two streets away from each other. Brisbane. Um, Brisbane, everybody lives two streets away from someone. Uh, Ian Brown and Bronya's father, William, would also end up working together once Ian finished his apprenticeship as a fitter and turner, another six degrees of Brisbane except two degrees. Um, It was known around town that Bronya's father, William, had a bit of an issue with alcohol. He would sleep on a stretcher outside on the veranda while Bronya and her mother, Vanda, would share a bed inside the house. Oi. It was Ian Brown who recommended Bronya for the position at Baths with his father, Reg. Bronya was 16 years old and fresh out of secretarial training when she began working with Reg in October of 1943. Mm. By all accounts, Bronya was a friendly, happy, outgoing girl with plenty of friends and admirers. She enjoyed going out with her friends and was looking forward to a weekend trip at the beach at Margate with a friend when she was killed. Ian Brown had just worked up the courage to ask Bronya out a week before her death. Uh, Ian, it's so sad. Okay, so Reg Brown. Um, So Reg Brown's family history is rich and a little tragic. Both of his parents were of Irish descent. His father, Hugh, moved back to Ireland from Brisbane briefly between 1870 to 1880. The dates are a little iffy. Where he met Reg's mother, Margaret Jane Spence. They moved back to Brisbane in 1885 and they had their first with, – um, with them they had their first daughter, Eva. They had five children and after the birth of their son, Alfred, who was the second youngest above Reg, um, they lost two of their kids. There was this massive sweep in Brisbane of typhoid, cholera and diphtheria. So they lost their two sons, Hugh Spence and David Wingfield, and with, uh, within a month of each other. Oh, it's so sad. Um, so when then Reginald came along and not surprising, he was called Reginald Wingfield Spence Brown. What a what a mouthful. Can't imagine what it would <clears> be <throat> like to have that many names. You have many names. Um, so, Reg- oh, my gosh, your cat is digging into my leg with its claws from under the table. 
Um, so Reginald was born on the 29th of August, 1896. Uh, Reg's older brother, Alfred, died in 1899. So Reg was the last son left with his sister, e- sisters Eva, Ethel and Gertrude. Reg's father Those was- Those are some classic old-timey names. I love Ethel. Ethel and Gertrude. Great cat name, Zane. Just on the DL if you want to- No, if you want to get two more. Um- so Reg's father was a clerk and the family was settled at 35 Stanley Terrace, Turinga. And that was up for auction two years ago. You can see pictures of it. It's beautiful. It's this amazing old Queenslander. It's so nice. Um, so in 1903, Reg started school at Turinga State School. Reg was a clever bookish student. He continued at Turinga until he was 15 and then he finished his education at Stott and Hawes Business College and then the Queensland College of Accounting. Don't, Ellen, don't. It's a cheap Sorry, joke. what was the name? What was Stott the name again? and Hawes. <laughs> Shut up. Ooh. Okay. So uh, he went and then he went to the Queensland College of Accounting. Uh, Reg's first job was with Dalgate and Co. Limited in Townsville. Ugh. Townsville in the 1900s, kill myself. He worked there. Basically anywhere in the 1900s, kill Kill myself. myself. (laughs) We would probably already be dead by now if we were alive in the 1900s. Oh, goodness. He worked there from 1912 to 1917 where he was their clerk and bookkeeper. He studied accountancy by distance education um, while he was there and at 21 in 1917 he had qualified. When the Great War erupted, he tried to enlist twice but he was excluded for his inguinal hernia. I don't know. I-N-G-U-I-N-A-L. Inguinal? Inguinal. Inguinal. I like that word. Inguinal hernia. He was very embarrassed about not being able to enlist. He returned to the family home in Turinga after the war was over and he began socialising with his friends who had returned from the war and he met his future wife, Eva Muriel Cox. <laughs> Let's all just have a moment, okay? Oh, God. You got that out of your system? Great. They were married on the 11th of June, 1921. Fun fact, the 11th of June is my birthday. Lol. <laughs> the reason why you're so upset is that you're actually now middle-aged. Me? Yeah. I'm middle-aged. Yeah. You, I mean, you never know which part of your life is actually going to be like the middle. So. I'm 25. I better That's not old. die at 50. You don't I'll know. Be pissed. You don't know. Shit. God. Um, so they were married on the 11th of June, 1921. And for a wedding present, they received a block of land on Ryan's Road in Tawong. Jesus Christ. Could you imagine? Only billionaires well, only can give billionaires their children now. blocks of land these days. Mm. So in Tawong. Tawongo. Um, their Nobody first called ch- <laughs> I did. I lived there. Um, Their first child, Melva Jean, was born in May 1922 with Ian Hugh following in February 1927 and Valerie Mavis in August 1928. The Browns were a well-liked family, well-mannered and well-dressed. Eva sewed everything. They were quiet and they kept to themselves. They got through the Depression mostly unscathed with Eva's family owning the general store and um, Eva's parents growing their own fruit and veg. And Reg was supplementing the family's income by doing private bookkeeping. As as Ellen mentioned before, the Browns and the Armstrongs were practically neighbours. Bronya and Ian were in the same class in primary school. Um, They had gone out and it was Ian who asked his father to give Bronya a job. So jumping forward to January 10th, 1947. 
So it was a Friday. Imagine it's 1947. It's January. We all know what Brisbane is like in January. It's fucking hell on earth. It is so hot. So it was muggy. Ow, Fifi, get your nails out of my Oh, 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 my God. I mean, I love cats, but, mate. Move your legs. They're just sitting there under the table. I don't know what else to do. Well, Jess, uh, maybe you should have thought of that before you put your legs there. I mean, you're basically asking for the cat to claw you. Oh, God. We're getting into that after the show. Um, So, oh, Zane's on cat patrol. (laughs) She's really mad about something. So... Branya had caught, so back to ni- January 10th, 1947. <laughs> okay. So it was muggy. So Branya had caught her usual bus at 8.10. She was bright and cheery, even though she'd only gotten home the night before at 11.30 p.m. Get it, goo? She went out. She had a good time. She partied. All right. Um, so it's unknown, but her and Reginald Brown might have taken that same bus this morning, but that's unknown. So the BAFS room, the Brisbane Association Associated, Associated Friendly, Friendly Society. Society. <laughs> um, All together now. <laughs> um, on Albert Street were, um, was where Reg and Bronya worked. So to give you an understanding of where their workplace was now, so you know where Rocking Horse is on Albert Street? If you look up and to the left, you can see the window. That was their office, which is mental that it's still there. I went and stood outside the other day looking like a creep. Did you get any vibes? <sighs> no. There was a lot of, like, there was some guy that smelled so bad in the mall. It was, and he was like, he walked past me and he wasn't dressed that badly. Like, he was wearing, like, jeans and a shirt and looked okay. And the smell coming off that guy, I was like, man, I can't take this. I can't just You're bathe. trying to, like, under and be like, oh, I'm there. I feel Bronya's spirit. And then old Stinky McGee comes up and ruins it. <laughs> Pretty much. Rude. So, um... They the baths rooms open up for business at eight thirty a.m. So Reg and Bronya were there to open with uh, Nurse Lorna Major arriving shortly after. So this is the timeline of the day that Bronya was murdered. Um, I should have specified that earlier. I'm sorry. Um, that morning, Doctor Reginald Souter was due to arrive at nine a.m. Bronya and her friend Norma Dobson had parted ways on the bus and had promised to meet each other for lunch at midday. So Audrey Hicks who worked at Jay's Frocks in the arcade, saw Bronya leave um, the uh, Baths building, saw her leave the arcade at 9.30 a.m. She was running errands because that was part of her job. So Dr. Souter at Baths saw patients from 9 till 10 taking a break and then um, he saw patients from 11 till 1. So Reg had had a lot of work that he had to catch up on because he had just returned from Christmas break the week before. Um Bronya had also promised that day to see another friend, Rhonda, who worked up at Finney's department store in Queen Street. So she saw Rhonda, she did, between 12 and 1, and she almost missed seeing Norma, who was running late. So it was about 12.55 where she ran into Norma in the stairs and they briefly caught up. And then they bid good – and then Mr. Souter, Dr. Souter, sorry, you went to medical school, I'm so sorry. Um, Dr. Souter um, left Baths and they both greeted him and that was when – that was the last time Dr. Souter saw Bronya alive. And then um, after that, Bronya and Norma both went back to work. So then um, Dr. Sherwood Horseman – Jesus Christ. Sherwood Horseman. Horseman. What a name. 
<laughs> arrived at Baffs for duty at 1 p.m. The waiting room was very busy. Bronya was then seen by Daphne Rudd, who worked at the Bond Suite store in the arcade at 2 p.m. She was crossing the street to go to the bank. And then she was seen back at her desk by nurse majors at 2.30. So at 2.30. So she's still alive. So Roy Healy, this fucker, right? He went out with Bronya the night before and had said, okay, Friday night, you and me, we're going to hit the town. I'm going to take you out, girl. Wear something nice. Wear something nice. Look your best. Maybe do a face mask in the morning. You know. I'm going to treat you. I'm going to treat you well. He shows up and he's like, lol. Remember when I said that we're going to go out? Well, we're not going to go out now. He ditched. He said, I have another engagement. <laughs> but the mother... I'm sorry, I can swear on this you podcast. You can swear on this podcast. This motherfucker, they're going on a date with another girl. What a douchebag. Men's the same. Ugh. From 1947 to present to day, men's be the same. So, yeah. So he uh, was like, lol, no, sorry, bye. And then, awkward, they spotted each other again outside in the mall at about 3.20 p.m. Or not at the mall, on Queen Street. Um, at 3.15, Nurse Majors was due to finish. She was clocking off. She, was, she's, she had shit to do. So she's like, bye. And she left. She, on her way out, called on Reginald, bid him good day, but didn't see Bronya, who was out of the office at that time. And then we're at 3.30. Dr. Horseman at that time had left the office as well. Beryl Fraser, a sales assistant at Harvey's Bag Shop in the arcade, saw Bronya returning to Baffs at 3.30. So there was no one in Baffs other than Bronya and Reg. At 3.30, Reginald said that Bronya received a phone call. She told him it was a boy from the north. I don't know, the north. It's very general. Um, who was in town with a car. Bitch, better get in that car. I'm people. Girls have, also bees the same throughout time because easily impressed by people who have cars. <laughs> oh my god! Um, so she asked if she could leave early because she had worked overtime in the past week, covering for Reg because he was away. You know, doing the shit, getting it done. So at some time during the day, it's not really sure when. Uh, Vonda. Vanda. Vanda. I, I actually like, don't know. I said that very no, authoritatively. No, it is Vanda, but then I was like, did I accidentally put a W, not a V? Because, yeah. Um, Vanda, Bronya's mother, had come in to visit her daughter. She'd had a small package of groceries that she gave to her daughter to bring home because she was expected home for dinner. So Reg said that he knew about the groceries and that Bronya had asked for the security grill key because she was going to go out and then she was going to come back and she was going to pick up the groceries and then Yeah, go so home. she was going to return to the uh, rooms after everything the, yeah. is closed. Yeah. So she needed a key to the security grill to so get she could let herself in. in the building. So um, she went back to the phone and then that was the last time that Reg and Bronya, well, that was the last time that Reg saw Bronya alive because their desks were separated by a partition. Yeah. Which what is time is this? Weird. We are at 3.30. Yeah. All right. So 4.10. According to Reginald, a girl entered Baffs, the Baffs office and began talking to Bronya. According to Reginald, they were talking about rehearsals for a radio play. I don't know. Sounds legit. And something about the difficulty of rehearsing screaming and pistol shots. Mm, that the pistol shots, the screams were happening after the pistol fired. Yeah. You know, that's the gist. That's the that's gist. The gist that it's, Red's some, got. it's vague. Um, so he assumed that the two women had left together because he didn't hear any more from Bronya. So according to witnesses, within five minutes of the arc- within the five minute radius of the arcade, 
it exploded into shil- shrill screams. They lasted for about a minute, a minute, and then some people were like, oh, it went on for like 20 minutes. Some people, witnesses who would later testify at the trial, some people were like, yes, I heard three screams. They lasted three seconds apiece. Other people were like, I heard 50 to 60 screams and it lasted for my lifetime. There's not a consensus. It's like with um, Alison that night, the timeline the screams, of her disappearance yeah, exactly. and the screams. Um, I mean, there was a dentist there, so maybe someone did scream. That's, yeah, maybe some. I mean, I would. I if I was at, at the, the dentist, dentist in 1947, 47? you could not stop me from screaming. No Novocaine, my God. Um, so on the ground floor, people heard kicking and stamping and heavy footsteps from the bathroom. Um, and then I got in quotes from someone being sassy, being like, some of the medical procedures in dentistry could be brutal. Long. You don't say. Um, so the majority of witnesses with the screams nominated being about 4.15. Um, and I'm now going to quote from Lingering Doubts. So Henry Compton, a tram driver, was paused at the corner of Albert and Adelaide Street traffic lights. He looked at the time, 4.21, and he heard cries coming from up Albert Street. He saw pedestrians looking over towards the arcade. He knew the baths rooms were there. He had been a patient at the surgery sometime before that Friday afternoon. Um, so Reg denied any that there were screams. He was in his office all afternoon between and between four and four forty-five. He you know, between that time he didn't hear anything. Maybe because he was making someone make those screams. Um, we don't know. Conjecture. Um, between 4 and 4.45, he called the Baths Dispensaries. Um, this was on Turbot Street. and George he, Street. George Street, sorry. Turbot Street is near that street, George Street. He called the Baths Dispensary and said to Marjorie Anderson, who was the typist at the dispensary, that he would be in to order the books from 5.30 or later. He asked her to leave the books on the desk and from that call, Marjorie said he was pretty calm, nothing was out of the ordinary, didn't sound like he just killed somebody. You know, okay. So old fucker Roy Healy testified under oath that at this time he was having a drink with his friend between four and four thirty. A likely story. A fucking likely story, Roy. Who was this bitch he went out with? I'm so like, and it was never disclosed who it was. I'm gonna get to my days of our lives um, think story I've made up in my head about this. In oh, a bit I'm, later. Very I'm very excited. excited. Okay. So Raywood, the optometrist, said to a reporter um, the following day that he spoke to Bronya Armstrong in the arcade passageway at 4.30. So so she is most likely, likely not alive. the screamer. She's probably not the screamer if the screams did occur at 4.15. Yeah. She's, so she's still alive thanks to Ray. Like she's not thanks to Raywood, but Raywood saw her at 4.30. Um. Uh, Dr. Horseman, who'd left at 3.30, returned for the evening session at 5.30 and there were already people waiting for him. Okay, bottom of page six. So Dr. Horseman finished with his last patient and left at 7.30 p.m., locking everything behind him. His last task was to slam slam the door of the staff room, known as Room 5, as he exited into the upstairs passageway. As he started his car, he turned on the headlights against the darkness. Reg said he left about five minutes before the doctor to walk to the dispensary on, jo- on the corner of George, George and Turbot Street, where the books were waiting to be audited. He crossed Adelaide Street, walking along Albert in front of City Hall. 
where King George sat astride his bronze horse and headed down Roma Street, intending to turn into Turbot. Reg had had no dinner. He was probably hoping hoping the book he'd finish the books quickly and he would go home. So Reg said to the police that he had left his office at 725, heading towards the Baths dispensary. Oh my God, that is such a hard word to say. On the corner of Turbot and George. Um, so police officer Patrick O'Farrell exited Roma Street Police Station at 732 and he didn't see anyone on Turbot Street. So now we get to a little character called Leslie Cerezo, a man with a criminal history who was known to police for loitering on George Street at night. Allegedly, he went down to Turbot Street and <laughs> relieved himself. Relieved himself. For the lack of a better word. Um, and rounded onto Little Roma Street. He rounded onto Little Roma Street to relieve, him, relieve himself at precisely 7.30. And do you want to know how he knew that? The, the giant bell. fuck off clock in City Hall. Oh. <laughs> uh, so funny. Yeah, so he heard the gongs at 7.30, which is how he pitched the time. That's also how um, Reg knew that he left precisely at 7.25 because he could see the clock as he was walking. Yeah, on. it's pretty big. You can't miss it. It's a big clock. Um, so back to our good friend Lingering Doubts. Um, so police officer John Cronin jumped off a tram in George Street at 7.30pm. He walked down the left-hand side of Turbot Street in front of the Producers Co. Cooperative Distributing... Wow, I can't speak tonight. Cooperative Distributing Society, COD, section of the market as far as Little Roma Street. He had crossed over and continued on the right-hand side. He said he reported for duty at Roma Street Police Station at 7.35. During his five-minute journey down Turbot Street, Cronin said he saw Leslie Cerezo nodded a good night as they knew each other and observed an elderly couple sitting on the steps of Luxford's Corner, the corner of Turbot and Roma Streets. Cronin's Turbot Street was a hive of activity that night. He also spotted two men and two women near a telephone box somewhere in the street and half a dozen people were congregating around a soup kitchen. Cecil Dorth, who was a technician at COD, was working the fruit and vegetable markets from 2 till about 10.30pm. He was inside the building when he saw a vehicle stop in Turbot Street for about 30 seconds at 7.30pm. This was unusual, he thought, so he went out to the pavement to see who it was, but the car drove off. Dorth said he lounged outside for about 15 minutes. Okay, so back to Reg. So Reg said he entered Turbot Street at 7.30pm, heading towards the dispensary. He entered a dark spot of the street and he observed a man leaning on an awning post and another man and woman standing in the recess nearby. And one of them shouted, here he comes, carrying the case. And Reg didn't think that they were talking about him. And then he alleged that he was attacked. So he said he was punched in the face and he swung his briefcase and hit a man in the stomach. Then the second man, assisted by the other, was like roughing him up and like giving him blows to the body. And then they grabbed his fingers and bit them. Ugh. As, you know, as you do in a punch up. No Just worries. grab the other guy's fingers and bite them. Ugh. Um, so this ordeal broke his – this is what he alleged happened. This um, thing broke his watch strap, but nothing was stolen, which is weird. So they didn't steal the watch, which I'm assuming was a fancy didn't nice one. Didn't steal the case because they, they could didn't have been steal money the attaché case. Yeah, exactly. He was a nice, like, well-dressed gent. He's, you assume if someone's going to do that to you in the street out of nowhere, it's because they want money. People don't usually say, here he comes, carrying the case, and then just punch on and then leave. Weird. Because they did just leave. They just, they the, just wi- like, the lady was like, don't fight him 
like fight him one at a time and then they just stopped fighting and left. As ladies do. As ladies do. The lady was probably, I don't know, about to faint, fanning herself with a oh, handkerchief or something like that. Kidding. Ooh. Anyway. So um, this ordeal broke his watch strap, but nothing was stolen. And Reg, for all intents and purposes, wasn't a very healthy man. And he was exerted by the whole deal, uh, ordeal because of his hernia and um, he asthma had an, and an enlarged heart. Um, he recovered on the side of the road, but then he continued on to the dispensary at 8.15. Because like, he's like, I got, sh- I got books to keep. Yeah. I got to keep going. I'm not going to let my hernia, my enlarged heart and my asthma and the fact that I was just bashed stop me from auditing these books because I am responsible. Very important. So Reg allegedly attempted to get inside the dispensary, but everything was locked and there were no lights on, which is weird considering he asked Marjorie to that he was coming in to mm. do the books. Um but Reg had forgotten that the board of management meeting was occurring upstairs at the dispensary. So Reg was still wasn't feeling well, so he sat down to recover and as I said, January heat, even at night, it's like stifling in Brisbane. It's And they're so wearing 1947 clothes. Like that's weed. Wearing jackets. Yikes. Wearing like jackets because it's improper to like show your arms or whatever. No, it's a no from me. That's a no from me. You can't get me in Ooh, get anything it, thicker than a tissue in summer. Get it, girl. Oh, cats. Um, he had missed his 810 bus back to St. Lucia. Fucking hell. And he had, he had like an hour to wait now. So he sat on the side of the road. Brisbane public transport. Bees it's still the same. The same. It's the same. It's still the same. Oh, my God, the 325 bus to the Grange. I don't know what it is about the Grange considering it's so close to everything. And it's like every hour would be the 325. I'm like, this is not enough. Not enough. I don't need to be sitting in the middle of Queen Street going, why can't I get home? Mm-hmm. This is fucked. Anyway, still the same. So he waited on the side of the road in Turbot Street for about 20 minutes trying to cool off and, you know, stop freaking out. So then uh, – he made his way back down and caught the 910 bus. Why didn't he report the assault to the police? I don't know. Apparently, Reg was the type of guy that didn't want to make a fuss. But the thing is, you get bashed on the side of the road, you go and report it to the authorities. Especially considering he was like one nanosecond away from the police station, which is on Roma Street. I know, that's just lazy. The central police station in the, like, state. Ugh. Anyway, so he got on the bus, thank God. And when he was on the bus on George Street, he saw Mr. Spink and Mr. Mamot, who were both uh, BAFs executives, walking out of the dispensary at 9.15. So there were people there. Yeah. He just didn't try hard enough, apparently. (coughs) Anyway. Okay, so 9.30, we're at. Reg has arrived home. His daughter Valerie saw him heating up water on the gas stove to bathe his hands and began sponging his suit. And he told her about the assault. Valerie noted that his homecoming wasn't overly late um, and that he wasn't over agitated, but he was a bit puzzled about what had just happened because he got bashed maybe. I don't know. Okay. January 11th. Fifi, Jesus. I know you're a star. We're trying to talk about a horrible murder, We're trying to talk about a horrible murder, Fifi. Here, have a treat. Will you shut up? We interrupt this podcast for cat treats. There you go. Anyway, January 11th. So Valerie 
uh, Brown and her mother were having breakfast in the kitchen when Bronya's older brother, Bill, called in at seven. And he was a bit freaked out because Bronya hadn't come home. Reginald then came in and said to Bill that Bronya had left the building with a girl and he told her about the phone. He told him about the phone call about the boy from the north um, that had the car. So uh, Bill left and Reg went and sat back down with his wife and his daughter and they discussed the assault the night before, but they didn't link it up with the disappearance of Bronya. They all expressed concerns for Bronya because she was very close to their family. Um, Eva, Reg's wife, was really concerned about Reg getting infections in his hands because 1947 and no one washed their hands or bathed properly. Um, I think people bathed. It wasn't like the 1400s. No, like, I think people, people bathed very, in 1947. People had like very different ideas about hygiene and stuff like that. Did In 1947, did yeah. they? I feel like people bathed. I really feel like people didn't bathe as much as we do today. I'm going to. I, I 100%. Girls only wash their hair once a week. No, I'm putting they myself. They definitely did. They definitely did. Like I respect your opinion, but also I think people bathed. <laughs> I'm putting myself on team bathed. Let us know if you think people from 1947 bathed. No, they bathed, but just not as much as we do today. I don't know. And there wasn't like anti-vac and stuff like that for them to like protect their hands. Um, and his wife was just concerned about the assault and she wanted him to go and report it. So he caught an earlier bus in and reported the assault to the police. So according to the police, he walked in at the station at 8.05 and he was observed by Sergeant O'Farrell. O'Farrell had been on since six and observed Reg's hands and called over Sergeant Sidney Lang and Reg repeated his story. The officers said that they filled out a criminal offence primary form outlining the complaint. So then Reg left and made his way back to the office in the arcade and arrived at 8.30. According to James Campbell, who was a BAFS patient who had been waiting for his appointment, um, the downstairs security grill was already opened and they didn't know who opened it. Um, could have been Bronya from the night before that didn't lock it or who knows. So Campbell followed Brown as Brown unlocked the office and opened some windows and then Nurse Major arrived at 8.30. Um, Campbell was outside but Reginald was already in the office. Um, she would usually enter through room five, but that day she actually went through the main entrance. Not sure why. She was feeling like a YOLO day, you know, just wanted to come through the main entrance. Um, she had made a comment about Reg's shirt. She was like, ooh, short sleeve. Oh, short sleeve. You look good, doll. For the 40 degree summer heat. Thank good God. Plan. Good for you. You don't have to roll up your sleeves. Um, and then that's when Reg pointed out his injuries from the night before. And she remarked, oh, how terrible. Um, nurse majors, poor doll, um, walked through the waiting room into the consult room and then into room five and turned on the light. She noticed someone lying on the floor and that wasn't unusual that patients would come in and lie down. Um, and then she notices there's a handkerchief covering their face and she lifted the corner. Oh, the poor doll. And she didn't realize, she didn't recognize who it was, but saw whoever it was, was dead. And there were black ants covering the skin on her cheeks ants I hate ants so much it's so gross I would really like them to not eat my dead body if at all possible if I have any control over anything Fifi can eat my dead body but ants on the other hand that's weird definitely not moving on (laughs) um so black ants were covering were clinging to the skin covering her cheeks she uh 
she was still at this point she didn't know who it was. Um, she went and fetched Reginald who knelt down and lifted the handkerchief and he recognised that it was Bronya. and she was partially dressed with an unlabeled bottle on her chest which turned out to be ethyl chloride which is pain relief for minor surgeries. Um, Reg went and poured himself a glass of water and for a glass Jess's of water. Jess's murder is fascinating but Zane just sent me a secret message. What does it say? <laughs> <clears throat> By the mid-1940s, per capita, capita consumption of water was approaching 70 gallons per head. Some of that increase was probably attributable to a modest increase in the frequency of bathing and showering but as advocated by health and beauty experts and made possible by the introduction that, of bath heaters. Only after the 1950s, however, when gas and electric hot water services and shower recesses became standard fittings in most households, and the frequency and bathing of showering increased. Did domestic water consumption rise to Ha-ha. exceed 100 gallons? I was right. So we were both right because I said that they bathed. There was a moderate I increase like, in bathing in the 1940s. I sent Ellen a message saying how boring this murder is. I was like, did you? Yeah, it's in our oh, group it's in message. my butt. That's why. I was just being unprofessional oh, looking at my phone mate, during the podcast. That's so funny. I was right and you were right too. What a happy ending. What a happy ending. Not for Bronya, however. however continue. Not so, um... He went and poured himself a glass of water and for nurse majors from the icebox. Um, Reg at that point told the nurse that Bronya had received a call on the Friday afternoon from a boy from the north. Boy from the north. Um, Hashtag boy from the north. Then Dr. Sherwood Horseman was called. So he was only over the river at Kangaroo Point and he only arrived a few minutes later because there was no traffic back then. I mean, there probably was, but. Fifi, Christ. Anyway, I love that cat more than life. Um, so he arrived a few minutes later from Kangaroo Point and then he looked at her for a hot second and was like, she's dead. All right. Such a dreadful business. It's like an episode of Dr. Blake. She's dead. All right. What a dreadful business. Pretty blase thing to say. So blase. What a dreadful business this horrible murder is of this woman that I've known for several years. So after, no, they hadn't known each other for that long. Horsemen haven't been there for very long. Um, Whoops. It was then that Reginald called the police to report that Bronya Mary Armstrong was dead. So Constable O'Byrne, he was a young'un. He was only 22, 24, and he said he received a call at 9 a.m. from a man he identified as Reginald Wingfield Spence Brown. Reg said on the phone, she left yesterday to go home, but I don't know when she came back, and that was what was reported at the police hearing. Sergeant Lang then reported to the CI branch saying that they may have a major crime on their hands because they realised that Reg had been in that morning to report the assault from the night before. Also, murder is a major crime Murder is a major crime, but they saw the link. Um, so the CIB detectives arrived at the BAFS office at 9, 9.30. I was about to say 19.30. No, 9.30. Um, so basically what was noted in the book is that Reg probably made a really big mistake mm, by going in that morning. Yeah. He, if he was assaulted, he should have gone in the night before. Yeah. Cause then it would have been less trouble. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it kind of, you know, from an outside point of view, you go into the police station, you say, Oh, I was assaulted. Look at my injuries. Here's the story. And then 20 minutes later, you call back and go, by the way, I found my typist dead on the floor. I didn't do it though. Sorry. Doesn't like it looks, <laughs> looks very sus. Very sus. Um, so we've got the police, police officer at the scene. So we've got Detective Sergeant Stuart Kerr, Detective Constable John Buchanan. God, there are a lot of English and Irish people, aren't there? 
Uh, CIB Chief Inspectors Frank Kearney and Tom Harold and Sub Inspector Frank Bishop Bishop, sorry, attended the death scene. Entering the waiting room, Kerr said that he spoke to Brown, who was in Bronya's office at the time, and he was speaking to Nurse Majors and Dr. Sherwood. <laughs> so he being Brown, made no comment, Kerr later told the court during the trial. It would seem that from the beginning of his testimony, Kerr attempted to portray Brown as uncooperative and surly. This was not borne out by later testimony as Reg Brown attempted to assist the detectives in every way possible to his own detriment. So Kerr brings up Brown registering the complaint that morning. But there was like a problem with the timeline because Kerr had said, uh, so you were assaulted at 5.30 when he wasn't. He was assaulted at 7.30, allegedly. But the thing is about old mate Kerr, he doesn't write anything down. No, Kerr is telling the court all of this amazing testimony, like word for word, based on his memory of his notes that he wrote at the time. But he he's not reading off anything. He has no record. He's just saying, and then Reg said this, and I said this, and Reg it's said like that. It's like you're not Rain Man, doll. You're not going to you remember everything. You could not. You could not. Okay. So this was Kerr's testimony about what he saw in room five. Room five is situated between room number four. <laughs> oh, my God. What? There are so many twists and turns in this case. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, um, which is the workroom for Mr. F.R. Somerset, a dentist, and the bath surgery, which is the room situated in the front of the Wallace Bishop's buildings overlooking Albert Street and nearest Adelaide Street. The body was lying on its back on the floor with the feet towards the door of room five. It was lying beside and parallel to a couch which was standing alone, the wall which divides room five and um, – I'm sorry, I can't read tonight – which was standing along the wall which divides room five and room four. The head of the body was resting on a blue-covered kapok pillow. The left arm was folded across the chest with the forearm and, forearm and the left hand was lying at the centre of the chest. So she was grasping her hands together. You could see her cute little nail polish and it was very yeah. – What was she holding in her hands, Jess? She was em- hol- holding an empty bottle of ethyl chloride, which is back – I looked it up, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, professionalism. So sorry. So what is ethyl chloride? Because I actually didn't look it up. Basically, it's pain relief. Oh. For minor surgery. So it's not going to like fully do you in, but it'll... It'll help you along. It'll help you along the way, you know. Um, so the top of the atomizer top of the bottle was lying loose beside the top of the bottle. <laughs> My God, he's an idiot. Um, on the left-hand side of the deceased, there was a white lace edge handkerchief covering the face of the dead girl and the lady's brown leather handbag was lying on the couch beside her. Um, the eyes were closed, the mouth was open and the face wore a pained expression. There were numerous ants crawling over her body, which was dressed only in a pale pink slip, a white brassiere, and a pair of black patent leather shoes, which one of them was half off the foot. Okay. So at this point, Kerr's like, uh... Well, you better come down to CIB. Don't worry, buddy. We just want to ask you a couple questions. Wanna, Nothing to worry about. We just want to ask you just questions. Wanna just want to get your statement, gonna... buddy. And apparently, according to Kerr, Reg was like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. We can we can do the internet. The internet? We can do the internet. <laughs> so Reg was like, I just had this amazing idea. <laughs> so sorry. Stick I've with me. It's an internet. An interesting night, to say the least. I'm a bit worse for wear. 
I'm doing my best. Um, so Reg wanted to do the interview. That's what I was trying to say. Interview, mm, not interview. internet. Make sense. Um, and he also thought that it might have had a connection at this point with another BAFS employee that had been attacked in Kelvin Grove. So um, the research that Deb Drummond did and Janice Tunis um, was that a young woman connected to the Friendly Society had been recently attacked. According to the newspapers, 28, a 28-year-old nurse was working to the Baths Private Hospital in Kelvin Grove on the evening of the 2nd of January 1947 when she was approached from behind by two men. They allegedly punched her quite viciously after covering her eyes, attempting to tear the clothes off of her while she cowered on the footpath. She said she screamed and they ran off. But just before the assault, she thought that she may have heard a feminine-sounding voice. Two young men were apprehended, but they insisted they were in a local pool hall at the time of the attack. Although occurring only days before and displaying several similarities, at no time was this incident factored into the inquiry into Bronya's death or Reg Brown's alleged assault. I think that's very a very interesting coincidence coincidence but also like what are there two people going around knocking off baths employees yeah, it's just interesting to know it's just interesting to note. i thought it is interesting but again brisbane everybody knows everybody i'm sure you could have thrown a pin and hit a couple of you know people connected to baths back in those days extremely true okay so as we said about stuart kerr he relied solely on the memory of retelling in this interview when it came to the pull police um the trial trial sorry i can't escape i can't um he apparently had made notes but these were never presented in court which i think is just the weirdest that's like me in like year 11 being like yeah absolutely i'm ready for my oral presentation and just coming up there and riffing yeah like you i know everything that, about this poetry assignment um so an interview was conducted so he they were like, he was asking like really weird questions like, is this your own office? Y- yes, of course this is. Um, where do you live? And like general interviewing questions. And then it started getting a little bit personal. Um, he, do you sleep in the same bed as your wife? And then Reg says, yes, my wife is my only sweetheart. Which is very sweet, but also sounds like the kind of thing that somebody making up somebody else's response would say. <laughs> So then he started talking, um, Kerr started asking about Bronya being employed at BAPS and getting into her wages and when she was employed and how long she had been working here. And then um, she, uh, she, and then he was talking, and then Brown brought up that she had left early because that she, because she had a date. Um, he says, the telephone rang about half past three, Miss Armstrong answered it and came and said to me that a boy from the north of Queensland was on the telephone and he wanted to go for a drive. She asked me for some time off and I asked how much she wanted and she said she would like to get off about four or a little after. I gave her the time off and then she went and finished the conversation. That was the last I actually saw of her. I did not see her leave. Some girl came in before she left and they left together. I did not see this girl but I heard them talking. They were talking about the silly arrangement of the screams not coming on until after the pistol went off. This girl works or acts in amateur radio plays. Interesting. And that's the thing. Like nobody, there was the whole theory of there being like an amateur radio society or an amateur theatrical society. There was no record of there being one in the arcade. Actually, Jess. Was there? Deb and Jan posted on their website, lingering-doubts.com, that apparently that there were people rehearsing for a play in... 
And people just didn't know about it. And nobody knew about it. Somehow they uncovered this information that. That was right. They listened to that, that, that lady at the. Yeah. At the reading of it. And yeah, she and was she like, came forward oh, and was like, oh, we was- used to rehearse the plays in the Wallace Bishop Arcade or whatever. And it's like, wow, that could have actually so been it, a thing. So it is possible. It sounds very Im- unlikely to say the least, but possible. Could have been. So we're at 11. So this is when Reg left the office. He closed the door and accompanied the office and showed them the route that he had taken the previous night. The police were sure at that point that they had their man, but they just needed to line up a few more of the details. Um, they detained Brown at Turbot Street and informed them, informed him that a postmortem was being done on Bronya. Um, Brown allegedly questioned why he had to go to the CI branch with the officers. And at that point, the news of Bronya's death had sort of rung through the community because Reg had let his wife even know and obviously news had travelled really fast. Um, so Roy Healy and Norma Dobson were the first at CIB to make statements. I'm going to get into my theory about Roy and Norma as we get into the trial. Ooh, I have theories. Days of our lives. Um, and the family were desperate for answers. So um, do, 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 do. So this is when the interrogation happened at the CIB. So does any um, – Kerr was like, does anyone else in the office um, use your office at the Baps Institute? And he's like, oh, look, Bronya might have come in at the course of her work and asking about like his interactions with the nurse and the doctors and the times that they'd left. Um, it was like these questions just – I just don't know how he could have remembered all of this. You just can't. It's not possible. Like – like this is in the book. It is pages and pages and pages. Pages of interviews, and it's. It, I mean, Reg couldn't have said anything because he was in the dock. Yeah. How did he? And he probably wouldn't remember because it was months previously. But you know, yeah. at this time but of that's the, the trial. Other thing about this case that because we Ellen and I have had a chat over the last like you know two or three weeks that we've been researching this and having our theories about it. I cannot get over the timeline of him being arrested. To him being sentenced. Yeah. So. It's so fast. He was arrested the night of, basically. We're almost there. We're almost there. So um, at this point, Reg's wife is at home with their daughter. This is the afternoon, so we're looking at about three or four o'clock. And the, um, Valerie and Eva were really, really upset about Bronya. They really liked her. She was a really important part of their life. And Ian had just gotten home and they hadn't told Ian about her death. Um, and then... Um, Detective Kerr testified that at about half past four, they spoke to Mrs. Brown and Valerie Brown and to say they had to come to collect some clothes for Reg. Mm, I just feel for this family. I mean, I feel for both families, but it's just like they just thought he, oh, I don't know, it's so sad. So um, um, Reg was still sitting in the car when Kerr went inside to talk to the family and then he came back out and he said, your wife and your daughter have told us that they were awake last night when you came home and that they both spoke to you and you didn't say anything about the assault, but he'd actually spoken to Valerie about it. Mm. And she remembers because she's still alive. And but she, she was never actually like... She was never questioned. She was never called on by police to test to verify the trial. Um, you didn't say anything about being assaulted. You didn't mention your injuries to your hands at all until breakfast time this morning when Mrs. Brown happened to mention to you that your son-in-law had hurt his hands. Can you give any explanation for this discrepancy that you have told me when you said that you told your wife or that your wife was asleep when you got home last night and you told her about your injuries first thing this morning and Brown responds with, I am very worried. I have got to say something. 
So according to Valerie, um, the police were really rude when they came over to the house. They like pushed past Eva, didn't want anything to do with her. They were searching for stuff. Um, Brown had managed a short conversation with his wife um, after handing in the clothes from the night before. And he said, if anyone's worried about their books, tell them to ring on Thursday. He still cares about the books. Oh. Valerie recalls her father's parting words after he left the house. Don't worry. Everything is going to be fine. Apparently, Big spoilers. They were not going to not be fine. going to be fine. Um, so apparently either the cops had said to Mrs. Brown or had insinuated to Mrs. Brown that Reg had killed Bronya. And at 5.45, Reg had no problems with the police looking through the baths rooms again. But the thing is the baths rooms hadn't been sealed Secured? off. No. They're, they were still doing consults during the day. The police would have had ample time to be able to come in and look at shit and move shit around. Mm. Not that I'm insinuating that they did, but they might have. Um, so at this point they start rifling through the office and then they look at the bottom left-hand drawer of Reg's office and they find a pendant. Um, so basically the pendant, which is interesting – they found a gold pendant. The fastener was broken from one end of the train. The frame around the stone looked bent and a blood stain was on the back. He, Reg, acknowledged, acknowledged that it was Bronya's. And Kerr was like, why is it in your drawer? Hey, quick question. Why is the victim's bloody, bloody pendant, pendant in your drawer? And he's like, I won't say anything about that. <laughs> Again, this testimony just sounds like words that people wouldn't Ugh. say. It's just weird. All right. And then 8.30 p.m., so we're talking a little bit later, Reg's fingernails were removed. Yes, Ooh. ostensibly because of the injuries on his hands, Ugh. which were apparently quite bad. But still, it's so gross. That's not that gross. Have you ever had like a bruise? Yeah, oh, like I, broke, I almost broke my toe at... James Street in the city and my uh, – James Street at um, work and because I, I dropped a mannequin on my foot and my Ooh. toenail came off. Ugh. It was so – it was the worst. I thought, like, I couldn't walk. There's oh, one yeah. thing about it. If you do your toes, you're fucked. Yeah, you need those You can't walk. walk. You need them for balance. <clears throat> okay. We got to hustle. This is getting – this is longer than I thought it was going to be. But I did do thorough research about this. Okay, so Saturday the 11th of January, Reg was officially in police custody. Um, when his son-in-law had heard that night that he was arrested, he went to a close friend called Owen Fletcher, who was a partner at a law firm. Um, we're not too sure if uh, Owen got to see Reg at the watch house. I'm guessing not. So then we jump. We miss Saturday. Don't know what happened Saturday. Reg was probably sitting in the watch house Saturday? going like, Sunday, sorry. He was arrested on Saturday. Sunday, question marks, yeah. moving on to Monday. Yeah. So 13th of January 1947 was when the police court session uh, began. Reg had bandaged hands. He um, Kerr was making his statement and Kerr was basically saying that Reg had made no comment about the death and Reg like stood up and was like, if he says I made no comment, then that's a lie. Only Reginald Wingfield Spence Brown would sound like that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, 
it's understandable. There wasn't television in those days, so there was a lot of people there. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a big thing. Well populated. Yeah, lots of people braved the thirteenth of January in Brisbane heat yeah. to come and watch to the go trial. And come and watch it. Madness. And the fourteenth, the day after, so the Tuesday was when Bronya's funeral was. Yeah, they had one day to organize a funeral, which seems hasty. I mean, the the victim's body is like one of the most important pieces of evidence mm. in a murder investigation. Mm. And, and they buried that real quick. Well, they cremated they it cremated real it quick. Real quick. My God. Um, so there was a huge gathering of people sit- and like what uh, Deb and Janice say in the book, which is probably still true, that people like took this to heart a mm. lot. There were a lot of people and it's like perhaps these people were – you know, still recovering after the grief of World War Two, So it's like mm. any loss was our loss. It was definitely like a, you know, you mess with one of ours kind of moment. Yeah, it's like you're fucked. All right, so we're at the 20th. Over 300 people, including women and children, waited in the hot sun for police court proceedings. Reg at that point pleaded not guilty. He was now being represented by Tom McLaughlin, who argued against Detective Cronell's request for another week's remand. He was, uh, Reg was already being held in custody without bail. Um, to the disappointment of the crowd, <laughs> the hearing only took 10 minutes. Oh, shucks. They've been there forever and they're like, 10 minutes, you're done. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, God. Um, and then the following week, Monday the 27th, um, was when he appeared in court for one minute before he was returned back to the cells before the court opened at 10, which is so weird. Um, so the prosecution stated that they would be ready to present evidence the following week, so beginning the 3rd of Feb, 1947. Mr. Landy, SM, who was the judge, opened each, ses- each session reading the charge um, and every time Reg responded, not guilty, your worship. Um, so Detective Kerr was giving evidence and speaking on behalf of Brown, which is so weird mm. because he was the only one that could remember anything, yeah. couldn't he? This guy's like savant memory. Uh, well, his recollection of what happened altered a lot over the course of three, week- of three weeks. You don't say. You Somebody don't making say. up bullshit made some mistakes. So far from making a single comment when he was originally charged and arrested, Kerr now said that Brown responded with, it's a mistake. I had nothing to do with the killing of the girl. I don't like this idea of reading that the defendant made no reply when he was charged. I want you to make note of that. Weird. Again, weird. Um, and later in the Supreme Court, Ken uh, Kerr sorry, expanded even further on Reg's Brown, Reg Brown's response, and it finally came out that Reg had in fact strongly protested saying, you've got to prove that. I don't admit it. I'll fight you all the way. I am a man of substance. I am not a man of straw, which is very, very dramatic and profound. And very, very dramatic. Sounds like Mel Gibson would yell that in a movie. Okay. So Kerr was telling fibs. Um, and Mr. Landy SM at that point uh, stated that the prima facie, I think that's how you say it, fasci. Oh, thank you, Zane. Bless you. Prima facie denotes that evidence, unless it is rebutted, would be sufficient to prove that a particular proposition or fact. So basically he was like, you can go to court. We're going to go to the Supreme Court. And McLaughlin was saving the defense for the Supreme Court because he needed to get his shit together. Mm. By the way, he mostly doesn't, but that's okay. That's all right. Um, So 
this was the big thing that really interfered with the defense's case of Reg was that the jail was interfering. So as an attorney, you have privilege to your client to be able to talk to them when you need to, to be able to organize their case. And the jail was interfering and not letting Reg um, give his legal team notes on his defense unless they were censored. So I've said in brackets, fucking with attorney client privilege. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) And uh, Tom McLaughlin said that if, it repeated again. Um, he would apply to the Supreme Court for an injunction. Injunction. An injunction is a court order requiring a person to do or cease doing a specific action. There you go. Thank you, dictionary.com. Thank you very much. So, 12th of Feb, a second application of bail was made. And at this point, um, that's when they found the sperm on Bronya's underpants and petticoat. Um, but this actually hadn't been presented in the original police hearings. Mm. Um, So the judge was like, um, we now have even stronger grounds for rejecting bail. And then good old John Tong comes in. John Tong, as in the morgue, Mm. this guy, the OG. I can't believe he had a morgue named after him. I know. Well, he was a pathologist. Not a great one. No, that's true. Shady as shit. Um. So under oath, John Tong had said that um, he personally had removed Bronya's slip in the post-mortem and only got it back on the 31st of January. So there wasn't enough time for him to give the evidence of the sperm in the original police proceedings. Um, There's like all this kerfuffle between the police and John Tong. It's really weird. Um, At the trial, John Tong had said that the slide containing the sperm from Reg's underpants, because apparently there was evidence of Reg having sperm on his underpants, had been thrown out. So they had like one slide from Bronya's, I assume. Yeah. And then one slide to compare, you know, with science, but they threw it out. And the defense was like, now you fucked it because now we can't do an independent examination of the results yeah and it was the same with like the blood sample they didn't do blood typing what the fuck they just didn't do it who were these people i know it's 1947 guys but come on pull your socks up um and then there was the whole thing of bronya's missing clothes so she was found in a slip and she had her shoes on she had her underwear on but she had no dress and obviously she had gone to work in a dress that day because it was 1947 and you wore shit we um, also wear clothes today in the 21st century. What? I, I personally wear clothes to work every day. Shit, I didn't know. Um, so there was massive debate about the dress because was it white? Was it blue? Originally the Telegraph, which was the paper. Flashback to that meme <laughs> from like two years ago. No, what colour do you think the dress is? It was grey. It was grey and it was white. I can't remember. Anyway, like those stupid shoes too. I've never been so mad in my life. All right. Oh, I don't know. I've been mad tonight. Um, so the Telegraph initially reported that the dress was white and they post they um, they put a picture of Bronya in a white dress in the um, in the papers. in the paper. Um, but after several interviews with witnesses who saw Bronya on the day that she died, um, it was released that the dress lol was actually blue. Um, so the original theory was that the dress that she was wearing at her death was not the one that she had worn to work and had a change of clothes to meet up with Healy or not Healy um, after work. But mysteriously on the 13th of Feb, the police changed the description of the dress to blue to support the theory that she was killed in the fortifying, 
five time slots. So she mm. wouldn't have had time to get, to changed, get changed before she was murdered. So people started finding blue dresses everywhere. People found blue dresses in every suburb of Brisbane <laughs> it was practically. So weird. People came out of the wood. It was in the river. Yeah. It was in the forest. So there a were blue a blue kimono material everywhere. A blue kimono was retrieved from the Howard Smith's wharves. A blue dress was found at the Kabulcha station in an empty wagon bound for the Kilcoy Timberworks. Um apparent uh, the bins at the actual arcade where um Baffs was um, had been empty that morning, so there was little of no hope finding out if it was there because it would have ended up God knows where. Um, and there was a lady out for a pleasure cruise on the river and she thought she saw some blue fabric in the water. <laughs> it turned out to be a blue piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And then, okay, this is when it gets weird. A reti- well, not that this hasn't been weird the whole the fucking whole time. The shop is just insane. Okay, so a retired man from West End who said he knew Reg Brown, what a fucking coinkydink, had felt that it was his duty to tell the police of a splash he heard in the water. <laughs> God, 1940s. Um, so Detective Bischoff ordered a dr- like a dredging of the St. Lucia Reach and the riverbank and turned up an old blue coat and a spotted dress. So somebody lost their dress in the river. And it and wasn't coat. a blue one. And a coat. Um, and there were doubts. There were doubts from like the like for all, like the water police, I guess, that the man could have heard a splash from like 420 yards away. What are you, the water police? <laughs> telling me I can't hear a splash when I've heard a splash? Um, otherwise, it would have had to have been an extraordinarily loud splash that probably wasn't clothing to make that splash, I'm guessing. Probably not. All right. So we're going to get into some of the witnesses that were at this trial. Number A1, Norma Dobson. Are we getting to your days of our lives? We're getting there. So Norma was Bronya's friend and she caught up and they they were the ones that like caught up right at the end of Bronya's lunch break at 12.55 in the um, stairway. Bronya, no, Norma had told the court of Bronya not being able to accept personal calls at work, which I think is legit. Yeah. Don't take personal calls at work. Norma thought this was awful that Reg yeah, wouldn't let her take Yeah, she was like, what a calls. monster. She, he won't let her take calls at work. And that's, this is because Norma would call her on the phone It's like, Norma, I've got frequently. shit to do. Yeah. Anyway. Um... So from this, she thought that Reg Brown was jealous of the male attention that Bronya was getting. I don't know where you can draw that conclusion from, but apparently you can. So Norma was the only person that told the police that Bronya was thinking of leaving Baths. Apparently there was this whole thing where Bronya was going was resigning, but the thing like she was meant to be resigning the week after that she was found dead. Not when she was dead, when she was alive. But Norma was the only person. But that. Norma was the only like as I, I'm pretty sure she would have told her parents. I'm pretty sure if she shared a bed with her mother, she would have told mm. her mother. Mm. Um, so she stated in the Supreme Court that she was Bronya's closest friend. You know those people that are like, "But I'm your best friend." Yes. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Don't do that. I'm not like that. No, of course you're not. Ouch. Um. Norma's evidence had helped the motive that Reg Brown had killed Bronya in a frenzied la- last bid attempt to satisfy frustrated lust. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Bronya and another guy, Norman Seacom, who was a uh, patient at Baths, um, they supported that theory together. I won't get too much into Norman because he's 
like he's just all over the shop. But the main thing is that, that he saw Reg with his arm around Bronya and Reg was like, I was just checking something in her ear. Mm. But Norm thought it was a more uh, loving embrace. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah, Norman did, not Norma. No, oh, yeah, sorry. I just called them both Norm. No. <laughs> the Norms are the ones who are uh, pushing the Reg has insane lust woods Bronya theory. Um, I just – I will post a photo of this, but um, Norma in the Courier Mail, like smiling, leaving court, mm. it's a bit eerie. And this is what sparked my theory on what happened. I'm so ready. Give it to me straight. Okay, so we basically – Reg Brown, whatever. So <laughs> case closed. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Okay. So now we're on to we're on to Roy Healy. So I'm going to get into this now. So Roy was the one who'd gone out with Bronya the night before and had broken his date with her because he's a shit asshole. <laughs> a shit asshole. I was going to say something ruder, but I realized I probably shouldn't have. Um, so he had known Bronya since October 1945. Um, the girl he had never taken out. Instead of Bronya was never named because I think it was Norma Dobson. Oh my gosh. What a scandal. That's what I think. Do you like, reckon? Look at them in this photo. They certainly are walking next to each other in that photo. I won't lie. They are both in the photo and they are both walking. But the fact that the like the fact that the prosecution wouldn't name her. But I just don't I think they just didn't know who she was. Couldn't they just not I call find bullshit. her? I call bullshit. Well, Norma also wouldn't cooperate <coughs> with Deb and Jan while they were researching the book. Because she was fucking Roy Healy. Telling you right now. Please don't sue us, the family of Norma Dobson. No. This is conjecture. I don't know shit. I'm not a police investigator. Um, so Roy's kind of alibi, I guess, was that he was having a drink with a friend called Watson at 4.15. They never interviewed a Watson. They never no. found a Watson. So there's no. no one to actually corroborate the fact that Roy Healy was with Watson. Mm. So that's the thing. I, the thing about this case, and look, Reg Brown could have done it. I don't know. But the fact that they didn't check every single avenue to find out who could have done this. Mm. There are so many people in this case that literally could have done it. Mm. There was almost too many people with the motives, means, and opportunity. Oh. They just were tunneled. They just, they they just tunnel tunnel vision, vision straight up. So weird. Um, and the the other thing that I think that Roy and Norma might have had something going on was that he supported Norma's claims that um, Reg was jealous of Bronya's attention from men. Um, he was never a suspect, even though he was the, one of the last people to see her alive, mm. which I feel like that's the first people you go and talk to. For sure. Oh, God damn it. So, yes, Roy Healy and Norma Dobson. Maybe. Potentially a scandal. Potentially a scandal. Who knows? Um, okay, so then we get to old mate Rhonda. So Rhonda and um, Bronya were heading out on the weekend. They were going to Margate. Shit's Margate getting was the spot Margate. to be back in the day. <laughs> and it now was like it's... going down to the Goldie for schoolies. Like it was the beach I mean, it's very idyllic with like the cute bikinis and the high-waisted shorts and oh, the boys yeah. with cars and – Those old-timey know. like swim outfits that men oh. used to wear that look like wrestling gear. Mate. No, but like – and those like high-waisted shorts that girls used to wear. And mm. then I tried to wear them when I was like 17 and it didn't have the same effect. It really didn't. Okay. 
So Ron, uh, Rhonda worked at Finney's on the mall. So Bronya had gone and seen her on her lunch break, and they were talking about Margate. They were getting psyched. They were really ha- they were really excited to go to Margate and like have a party time. So they were going to meet the next day at noon when they'd both finished work. Because there's some like the ba- Baffs was open on a Saturday, but like closed only till twelve. Till twelve, yeah. It was yeah. a half day on a Saturday. She apparently. testified, and the the question that keeps coming up when they interviewed people. Um, in the court case, was like, was Bronya happy? Yeah, seemed to be like the most important question. Well, because they the the other possibility was, was that, that she killed herself. she killed herself. So they were asking everybody like, was Bronya happy? And every single person was tripping over them damn selves. She was say, delirious. She was she so never, happy. She never even has heard of tears. She was happy every minute of the day. I never saw her cry. I never saw her frown. She uh. couldn't even do it. But everybody was very over saying how happy Bronya was and how impossible it was that she committed suicide. Yeah. Which um, like, yeah, and they're right. Rhonda, I don't think she killed herself, but. Yeah. So Rhonda was very, you know, very happy to say that Bronya was like super stoked all the time. Um, and it actually turns out that Rhonda had gone to Reginald Brown's house. Um, so uh, Mr. Gibb, that Harry Gibbs, that was the junior defence barrister, um, spoke to Bronya about, um, spoke to Norma. No, fuck. Spoke to Rhonda. Rhonda. They all sound the same in my head. It's old lady names. Um, spoke to Rhonda and he said that you and Miss Armstrong, I think on occasion called on the prisoner. And she's like, yes. And his son too. Ooh. Um, she didn't say, uh, like they called in to see Valerie or Ian. They were um, hanging out together, Rhonda and um, Bronya, because she would hang out at Bronya's house. And they just went over and visited Reg's house because she was like, oh, look, it's my boss's house. We should go and talk to him. Another theory. We'll get to that in a hot sec. Okay. And then we get to John Tong who's, you know, giving his findings. Ellen's looking at me really. I'm I'm smiling. Oh, okay, good. I was like, does she think I'm doing a shit job? Because I feel like I'm doing a shit job. No, I was like interested. I'm okay, ready good. for the next fact. Um, So John Tong and I've got <laughs> – my dot point underneath is says, as in the morgue, <laughs> reported that Bronya died approximately at 5 p.m. on the 10th of February. Um, there was a wide reddish mark that was present around Bronya's neck, which was 12.7 by 3.8 centimetres, which is a belt, basically, like a thickish belt. Um, the skin was abraded due to ants. Ugh. Um, so the superficial layers of the skin had been removed by the ants, which is just a nightmare. Um, <clears throat> the marks on the throat seem to have the dimensions of the belt and that her hymen was still in position. Oh, that word, hymen. Hymen. Um, Don't say it in a sing-songy voice. It doesn't make it better. <laughs> um, so Frank Bischoff used a funny term that uh, was called, uh, that said virtually a virgin. Um, so there's a quote from... Uh, Dr. William Laurie, which uh, was about another case of a girl that was murdered in the 1960s that I think is interesting that the ladies brought up in the book. Um, And it says, in the morality of those days, if a girl's non-virginity had no bearing on her death, we would change the report in in deference to her parents. We would make two copies of the postmortem report, one for general perusal and one for the coroner. 
the parents would be suffering enough. We didn't want to cause them more anguish, not in cases when it was totally irrelevant to the inquiry. Heaven forbid your murdered daughter wasn't a virgin at the time of her murder because that would just really make it worse. Like, oh, I mean, I know she's dead, but, like, you're telling me she was a slut? I guess I don't really care all that much. Because she's unfortunately dead. So basically what that demonstrates is that the fact that her hymen was intact may not have been. It doesn't prove that she wasn't raped because – no. It could have been a lie that it was still intact for her parents' benefit, essentially. Yeah. Yikes. Yikes. Big yikes. <laughs> so, um, Jong Tong at this point also described uh, Reg's hands in detail about the abrasions and the bite marks on his hands and the fingernails getting removed. Ugh. Um And then there was the whole thing with the examination of the pillow, which Bronya was – uh, her head was um, lying on. Lying on. Sorry, I was like underneath. No, that doesn't make sense. Um, so there was a mishap. So there were two pillows that were taken from room five, but only one of them was given to John Tong. So only one was examined. Yeah. So the examination of the marks and testing if blood was present. And there's this whole thing with blood that like other stuff shows up when you do the examination for blood. So like certain cleaning products show up mm. when you um, – Things with coppers and stuff like yeah. that Yeah, so like up. red dirt. There was this whole thing about the Lindy Chamberlain case. By the way, plug the Letters to Lindy show that's going to be on at the Brisbane Powerhouse. Oh, my God. we got to go I'm see it. I'm so excited. True crime theatre. It's like a dream come true. We literally thought we dreamt it up. No. <laughs> it's real. It's real. Um, like that red dirt in the Azaria case um, showed up in the SUV that they were driving that showed up in the test for the blood. Mm. Um, and then there was the argument of asphyxiation with the pillow and the fact that there wasn't um, lipstick on the pillow because Bronya was very known for having lipstick, much like Ellen Rose Sorensen. She had like four lipsticks in her bag. Funny story about Ellen. I'm going to digress for a second because this is my favorite Ellen story ever. We were out for her birthday. This was last oh, year. Oh, no. Yep. Um, and we were having a really good time. Ellen was drinking a little bit. Not too much. Enough. Oh, God, she's leaving. Oh, right. She's getting her water. Um, and Ellen was quite drunk. I was not. Um, and I... Ellen was like in the bathroom for a really, really long time and I was getting a little bit worried. So I walked in and I find Ellen at the sink in this bar, like sobbing, absolutely sobbing. I was and I full was like, weeping. I was like, Ellen, what's wrong? And she's like, I, I, I can't find my lipstick. And then I looked down in her bag and I was like, you mean this one? She's like, oh my God, yes. <laughs> At that moment in my life, the lipstick, the inability to find my lipstick was kind of representative of like my inability to like find myself and my struggles in my life. So I was crying about the lipstick, sure, but I was also crying about a lot more. Aww. I'm not the kind of person who cries over lipstick in a bar bathroom. I'm just not. Anyway, better burn your Armstrong. Let's oh, go. So funny. So there wasn't, um, look, the missing pillow could have had the lipstick on it could that have had was lipstick used. on it could have had you blood on know. it it could have had something we will never know because it, it just wasn't handed to john tong and also if it was handed to john tong it probably would have been thrown into a furnace accidentally 
Seriously, this guy evidence. had a morgue named after him. He really, I hope he really like increased his output. Well, that's the thing. Like they tried to talk to him. Um, Deb and Janice tried to talk to John Tong at one point um, and he wouldn't do it. But then in like interviews and like talks and stuff like that that he did afterwards and this case was brought up, he was like, oh, I was very green. That's not an excuse when a man's life is at stake and a woman is dead. Mm. Please do a good job. Please don't throw the slides in the bin. <laughs> don't throw the pillow in the furnace. Okay. So next witness that I want to talk about is Lorna Major, who was the nurse that was working at Baths. Um, so she had only been working there for about three months, so she was still new to everything. And they had just brought in this precedent that <laughs> Try Lorna- not to kill yourself with boredom from the next is this about the filing system? Yeah. They talk just about the filing so system funny. for nine damn chapters of this book. I'm not so joking. Funny. Um so one of Lorna's jobs was when she was leaving, because she got to clock off at 3.15, but um obviously the doctors were working beyond that. She had to like wheel the filing system. <laughs> the like patient's cards in like a wheelie. And she was pissed about floor. it. She Yeah, she thought it was ridiculous that she, she had to wheel. It was so weird. Um, so she talks about um, she left obviously at 3.15 and she'd gotten changed because she was going to go and live her life and be in Queen Street. Um, so she was in and around town in the south of Brisbane until about 5.30 and then she walked from the Combank building on the corner of Albert towards Queen Street across from the Baths rooms and um, the prosecutor was like, did you look at the rooms when you walked past? And she's like, yes, I looked up at the rooms um, and she looked up but she didn't notice any light in the room. But the fact is like 5.30 in Brisbane in January, it's it still is not bright. Dark. You don't need like... I don't, don't need to turn a light on. So I don't think that's a good enough signal to say that something, something unsavory or yeah. someone wasn't there to yeah. say that, you know, because apparently Reg didn't leave until about 7.25. And then, yeah, it goes on to talk about this like patient card filing system and that she thought it was ridiculous. And it's like, dude, just wheel the trolley. Yeah. The, I you think, get to fuck off at 3.15. Yeah. I, but I think the defense, the the reason why they hammered on about the filing system until time ends is because they kind of were trying to create this idea that Reg came up with the So that he had the time system. by himself to be able to kill So Bronyon. that the filing wasn't anywhere that he would be. It would be moved to another room yeah, so by Nurse Major so nobody in. would ever come in to get a patient's file Thank card. Thank you for actually reminding me of the whole point of me bringing this up. I That's just, okay. Oh, it's just so It funny. drove me crazy too. Every time I would like read the word f- like filing system, I would be like, oh my Lord. It's like I'm done. Your murder investigation is hinging on when a filing system was implemented. Like, are you kidding? Is this your <laughs> first day on the force? Like... Uh, and as we'll find out. And then there's the whole thing about the ethyl chloride. So basically it was Reg's job to order in the ethyl chloride. But if there was a problem with any of the batches, then it was the doctor's responsibility to get the refund, mm. which is weird. Like weird, if weird someone's going to deal with the in of it, surely they're going to deal with the out of it. I thought in of it was just a word that I've never heard before. No, when no, you no. Said, I was like, the in of it? What does no, that mean? sorry. Like... Just meaning No, that, no, I understand what you mean. Yeah. Now. And then there's the whole thing about why she entered in the main entrance. Mm. It's like maybe she was just feeling it. Maybe she wanted to go to the sweets shop. Maybe. Maybe she just didn't want to go in the back entrance because she was just like, fuck the stairs. Right. Been there. 
done that. Bought Got that the T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're so lame. All right. I'm so sorry, Zane. This is another long one. But it turns out that researching murder is really important if you're going to talk about it. You I've know. heard that research is good if I've you're going to be talking about something. Good. Where are we in the trial? Um, so now we're going to get to our old mate friend, uh, Leslie Cesaro. So Leslie at this point in 1947 was 34 and he had been in a lot of fucking trouble. He'd been court-martialed. He'd been arrested for lewd activities. He was also married with children. No worries. It wasn't as if he was like that weird creepy guy in hairspray that's got the – um, like the new, like what's, what's that guy? The flasher. The flasher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not like that guy. Like he actually has a house and responsibilities. Um, Flashers so- can have houses. <laughs> End flasher discrimination now. Um, so this, uh, they, he had basically, during the whole trial bit, he actually was in the Korea Mail because his house had burnt down which is interesting, but he was known to police. And the fact that he was called as a witness for this stuff seems a bit... Sussy McGee. Sussy McGee because I feel like he was that type of person that had so much shit in his background that he was doing something wrong and the cops said, like, you were on Turbot Street. You're going to say that nobody was there. And we'll make this go away. Yeah. That's That's my theory anyway. I just don't, like, I don't see how somebody that was so involved with the police in not a good way could be a rightful witness at something like this. Yeah, it's, a bit, it it's, a, like bit it's a bit courthouse snitchy. You know, like how they're always like, oh, yeah, my cellmate told me he did it. I'm yeah. like, really, you? And also what turned out really interesting was that Cesaro actually worked with um, Reginald Brown's son. Mm. And he said following the court proceedings and everything that had gone down, he was like, if I'd known it was your dad, I wouldn't have done it. It's like, shit, you shady as fuck. Yeah. You don't get to be involved in any more court proceedings. Thank you very much. No, thank yeah, you. Yeah, unless it's you being arrested. Yeah. Um, and then the sad bit of the trial is when the Armstrong family starts talking about it. It's really sad. Vonda was a, um, a witness and she was the final witness of the prosecution and McLaughlin was pissed about it mm. because you like it was what, a bit a, what a way the to, jury. yeah what a way to manipulate the jury to get the mother of the murder victim up oh it's just just, just soul destroying um basically she had come in that day because she had dropped off the bag of groceries for Bronya to bring home and then they started talking about once again here I want to put this question to you in a general way. Was there any trouble whatsoever that would make her down in the dumps? It's like, I think we get it. I think that she's definitely hasn't killed herself. Yeah. Everyone has said that she was very jolly and very happy. Poor thing. And also, I don't think ethyl chloride can kill you. No, not that, no. You'd have to take a shitload of bottles. The room would have been littered with them. Mm. Um, and then they started talking about her spectacles because the spectacles ended up with like a bloody fingerprint, but it was indistinguishable because. 1947. Um, and, yeah, that Bronya had slept with her mother and that Bronya. In the same bed. Yeah. In the same, in the bed, same as bed as her mother. Sorry, in the same bed, in the same bed, in the same bed, in the same bed. I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. Clarification in the same bed. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, that they'd slept in the same bed and that Bronya had told her everything. Um, and I thought, you know, I. I'm not advocating for Reginald Brown. He might have done it. But this whole evidence thing just seems very... Um, Non-existent? 
yeah, I'll say this for now. He didn't get a fair trial. For sure. For sure. Um, and Vonda spoke to the Truth newspaper. This was um, after the court proceedings. She said, I cannot believe that my fighting girl is dead. This is what Bronya was, my fighting daughter. I told her once never to be too free with men and to always keep them in their place. And I remember well how confidently she, she replied, Mother, if I'm ever cornered, I'll fight. <sighs> she was 19. Oh, God. It's just so fucking sad. Why have we done this to ourselves to talk about these horrible things? I just don't know. So, yes, uh, Vonda so, Armstrong was the final Yep. Uh, witness for the prosecution and to no surprise the jury came back with a guilty verdict guilty verdict i mean you would you would john tong tells you so you go yep yes john tong that man's gonna have a morgue named after him one day yeah i'll accept that my god this is rubbish for me tonight isn't it oh my god um so he was sentenced on the 11th of march so that's insane like the 10th of february to the 11th, 11th of, of March. March. That's two months. Mm. The fact, and I, I don't bring this up as a side, we will be doing an episode this week about it. Eurydice Dixon, that piece of shit that killed her, he's not going to be in court till October. Like he's done like the, like the sentencing-ish bit before they go to trial, but it's like that's not going to be until October. This was two months. I think the population – increase might have something to do with that. I mean, they've got to wait for everybody else's trials to finish before they can start new ones. I guess. Back in the day. But it just feels really fast. It is incredibly fast. It's really, really Regardless, fast. like, it's super fast. Oh, hi, baby. Hi, baby. I thought we'd been getting on really well without any interruptions. No, I love <laughs> Fifi me. must have been asleep. Um, so this was when the trial was over and the sentence had been given out that Reg was found guilty of murder. Um, This was from The Truth, uh, which was a newspaper. The killer struggled to his feet, glanced for a second or two behind him, possibly to see the time on the court's clock, and then having recovered his composure, stumbled from the dock. When it seemed he might be missing the commencement of the 44 concrete stairs that wind from the dock to the cells beneath, a police sergeant rushed across and shouted, Down there, Brown looked up as though surprised as he should have been told. He had already made that trip from the dock to the cell 17 times. Really well written for like a Brisbane newspaper. I know. Shout out to the truth. Where are you now? Not here. <sighs> so, yeah. So he's sentenced. He's sentenced. And then what happens next? And then, oh, no. So Tom McLaughlin went on to describe um, who was Reginald Brown's defense, the like 13 flaws that were in the Crown's case. Um, which were published in a newspaper. So there was failure to group stains from the found on the girl's slip, failure to group the blood, lack of thorough investigation of the screams. Half an hour after the the murder was alleged to have been committed, Brown had spoken over the telephone. Was there any evidence before the jury that the building had been searched for stains? Like that's the thing. There were several other places in this building that could have happened. Like maybe the screams was Bronya, but it wasn't in baths. Mm. What if it was in the bathroom? Was if it, what if it was in the stairwell yeah. or one of the other buildings? Like it's just oh. the failure to call doc, uh, Detective uh, Buchanan when the Crown attached the utmost importance to certain conversations as which Buchanan was present. They should have proved by the best evidence available. The time of the girl's death, like it wasn't exact. 
there were no marks on the frontal portion of the girl's body apart from the mark on her jaw. Um, the girl's shoes, which seemed to ed- ed- indicate that the body had been dragged up a short or long flight of stairs. The arcade security grill key would Brown throw away something that, um, that one would expect to find on him. Would any man murder a girl in such a public place? Who would murder somebody in their workplace and then come to work the next day? That's the day? thing. Like, I, if he had been like the next day being like, no, nah, I'm not going into work, sorry. Mm. That's a little bit more believable, but the fact that you would go back to work is so weird. Um, the evidence of J- the Jong Tong pathologist, like that is troublesome. To say the least. Like, I, I, oh. he has a morgue named after him for the love of God. Um, and then the, uh, the very weak link of the girl's pendant being in Round's drawer. As they say in the book, if you did murder her, why would you put her it, bloody... In- your desk. It is the kind of thing that makes sense if somebody is trying to implicate somebody else in a murder, like, oh, I'm going to put this bloody pendant in his drawer, you know, but is not something that you would actually do if you were the murderer because nah. it is so obvious and so suspicious that it becomes not obvious and not suspicious when you go around on it. <sighs> so, yeah. And then that's when McLaughlin lodged the complaint about Bronya's mother being the final witness. Quote, that it fanned the fires of prejudice, mm. which I think is understandable because it would, you know. Because it did. It did. <laughs> That's what it did. Um, so Ian and Valerie often visited their father in jail um, and Ian vividly remembers his father confined in those visits like an animal, what resembled a steel cage in the middle of a room. He also remembered his father saying to him, son, don't ever get offside with the police. You will never win. They will beat you every time. Don't do anything that might get you in here. This place is worse than you could ever imagine. So then there's this whole thing of like, did Reg get involved with the police in some way, shape or form that would have gotten him in this situation where he was implicated for Bronya's murder? And then on the 20th of March, 1947, Reginald Wingfield Spence Brown was found hanging by a belt in his cell, which is very sad. Um, So Brown at some point um, had written a letter to his wife and his wife had also given a one-off interview, which was published on the 1st of June following the coroner's inquest into her husband's death. And the thing that she regretted the most was that her husband didn't, her husband didn't think that she believed in him, which she said to her death that she believed in her husband. She believed that he didn't do it. And one of her big regrets is that he might he not have know. known that at mm. his death, which is sad. Um, so he at one point had written to his wife because she had uh, given him lunches when he was appearing in court. And he said, your kind and loving thought in sending me such nice lunches on each day of my trial will long be remembered. And Eva said, when he did not hear from me, Mrs. Brown continued, he possibly became despondent and that might have driven him to desperation and caused the poor, unhappy man to take his life. <laughs> so um, after, after Reg had killed himself, the Korean Mail had actually been sent in a letter um, and the police weren't too happy about it but this is what the letter read it was like I'm a coward I killed Bronya Armstrong on Southport Road we had a drink of wine and then we quarreled I was jealous of her running around with other men 
Bronya hit me with her shoe. I got furious. She lay her head in a cushion face downward. I sat on her back. I shoved her head into the cushion. She fell limp. I called my mates. We drove back to the city. Waited until dusk. We saw a policeman with a lady love. We waited until he passed us, took her upstairs. Her pendant got caught on my button of the coat. It broke. I picked it up and threw it into a drawer, shifted the body to another room. There's no punctuation in this. I'm not being weird about it. There's just no (laughs) punctuation. Um, There was three of us, one dressed like a girl in Bronya dress. So So tell Kerr to catch me if he can. I have a good start now. I post this note back to my mate to post to you by that I will be well out of the country. So please tell me the police to tell, to leave Mr. Brown go to leave Mr. Brown go. He is not guilty and tell him I am very sorry for him for being such a coward. I will tell the full story when they catch me. And the police were like, nah, it's a joke. I reckon it's bullshit. It probably is. 100% bullshit. No way. But you still should look at it, shouldn't you? I mean, you should. But they didn't. But they didn't. Um, Yeah. So um, Reginald Brown had left a note when he had killed himself. And I'll finish with this. It said, to whom it may concern, I did not kill Bronya Mary Armstrong. My conscience is clear. Signed, Reginald Wingfield Spence Brown. And that's that. That's what happened. It's been quoted by Dr. Moles of Flinders University, who is a part of the uh, Miscarriages of Justice Project, that he didn't get a fair trial. He for sure didn't get a fair trial. He might have done it. I'm putting my hands up. He might do have done Do you think it. he did do it? Oh, I don't. I, I, to be honest, this book has made me more confused than I was at the start. Yeah. When I, before I had really researched this, I was for sure certain that he didn't do it. And then it was the whole thing about the bites on the hands, which is really like that assault thing. That's what's mainly fucking me. Mm. I mean, Ellen and I have discussed that, that there may, be, may have been like an adult consensual relationship between Bronya and Reginald. I don't think so, but it's a possibility. It's a possibility. They could have been closer than anybody thought and yeah. maybe, who knows. But I just... Do I'm you the, think he did it? Well, I'm the dead opposite of you. I was so sure he did it and then I read the book and I was like, but maybe he didn't do it. Yeah. But I, I kind of think that they making a murderer him. I think that he Definitely. did do it, but because the investigation was so shit, it makes it seem like he didn't do it. And like, you know, we're reading this now and being like, they didn't analyze this. They didn't analyze that. But the truth of the matter is that the Queensland police historically have been incredibly corrupt. So. Oh, yeah. That bit. A number of the people involved in the Reginald Brown sitch would later be implicated by the Fitzgerald Inquiry. What's that, Ellen? The Fitzgerald Inquiry is a royal commission into corrupt police activities in Queensland from 1987 to 1989, but covering a lot more time. Basically, the Queensland police were running protection rackets, running call girl services, bribing people, doing all the bad stuff. Um, The police commissioner was put in prison. The premier was charged with perjury. No one in this room is listening to me because they're patting the cat. I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening. Um, And so Frank Bishop, who we talked about a couple of times, who was the sub-inspector on the case, um, was later on in his career the uh, police commissioner and he was implicated in the Royal Commission into the National Hotel, which basically 
was investigating whether or not the cops were being corrupt and using the National Hotel as their house to be corrupt in. And they were? Well, uh, old mate Gibbs, who was the junior barrister, was the royal commissioner. That's right. I remember that bit in the book. And, yeah, so it's possible that – here's the thing. Frank Bishop, person being accused of crimes. Frank Bishop, still police commissioner, defined some of the parameters of – the Royal Commission, and therefore Gibbs kind of had no chance to kind of actually investigate everything because he was limited in what he was allowed to investigate by the person that he was investigating. Weird. Weird. Frank Bishop 100% was corrupt. He was the main corrupt guy um, at the time. They were. I don't have good feelings about Kerr either. I don't have good feelings about Kerr either. The, you know, we're saying at the start of the episode when we're talking about Kerr's testimony and how it doesn't seem real, the Queensland police were notorious for using a technique called verbaling, which is basically just making up stuff that the accused person said, creating false testimony essentially. And it was a tactic they would use all the time because like, A, who's going to argue with the police? B, they wouldn't necessarily be like, yeah, he said he killed him, but they would like create testimony that was not likely to be questioned, if you know what I mean. So, you know, oh, yeah, the accused said he was there at 6.30 p.m., not 7.30 when such and such happened. Mm. So I think the fact that, you know, the investigation was partially being run by somebody who would later resign being police commissioner because he was corrupt. I think 100% if he was still alive during the Fitzgerald inquiry, he would have, Frank Bishop would have been in prison because there was absolutely no doubt that he was one of the main runners of the corruption in the Queensland police. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, is that it was the culture of the time. So even if you weren't necessarily, you know, going to prison because you're a corrupt police officer, everybody did all the stuff. You know, that uh, I was reading when I was reading about the Fitzgerald inquiry, which you can read online and is not boring. You can talk to my dad about it. My dad knows so much about the Fitzgerald inquiry. a lot too. It was, a, I mean, it's one of the, like, it's like Queensland's Watergate. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, it's the scandal. It's the like part of history, you know? So yes, I don't, he didn't get a fair trial. I think because the police were so corrupt and so questionable. It's just like. It was so matey matey. It's yeah. like they were I, Boys club. I, I don't like protecting each other. I, I don't know what the benefit of it was. This poor girl dies. Mm. And they just go that bloke did it. That guy did it. And it's like, look, to be honest, like I get red flags from Norma Dobson. I get red flags from Roy Healy. Not saying they did it, but you know, there's just there's things to be asked. The biggest red flag for me, even having just said everything that I just said about the police being corrupt. There were three police officers and two, like the older couple sitting down. And, and Leslie Cesaro. Who, again, sus. We've already talked about our theories about him. All those people in the soup kitchen, people in buildings. Nobody saw or heard Reg Brown get attacked. And I just do not think that biting somebody's fingers, that's just not something that would occur in that kind of punch up that kind of punch up wouldn't occur people don't just roll up on people and then go for no reason it's just too convenient it's the one thing that like makes me go if that didn't happen I'd be like he's obviously innocent there's nothing but it is just too suspicious 
that he had those injuries on his hands and then – And it's funny because, like, I spoke to David about this case, um, my mother's partner, and he was like, for sure he did it. He's like, he did it, Jess, he did it. I was like, but, 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 and he's like, no, he did it. It's a bit hashtag. And then I read it. Like- and then I read this, and then I go, and that's the thing. That's what makes me go. Yeah, he might have done this. Is the biting of the fingers? It just seems mm. too convenient. It's just too convenient. Nobody saw it. Nobody heard anything. Like even in 1947, like he was on yeah. Roma Street. But like it was a Friday the night. Thing about there the were screaming people. gets me too. It's like if I. You know, say I'm at work and then I can hear screaming. Like when the kid got hit at the front of my work, we all flipped out. We all got on our phones. We all dialed triple zero. We all went and got water and towels. But and if all you that were next shit. to a old timey dentistry, like, you wouldn't react that way to screams. Maybe, but it's like, and I, they brought this up in that documentary about the girl that was killed in. Um, it was like late fifties in, and it was like basically how nine one one started in mm. America. And this girl was brutally murdered. There were over a hundred people that heard her being murdered, and no one did anything because a lot of the people that were in the surrounding areas were like immigrants from Poland and Germany, and like all these people that were affected by the war. A lot of them had come out of concentration camps, and they didn't want to get involved mm. and I feel like that might this have been wasn't the added- witness no I know about the witness yeah the witness oh um I feel like that might have also been the mindset then too is like don't get involved don't get involved yeah Who which knows? I think is important to note as I well I mean we this, this case is like a big series of question marks and like I shout out to Deb and Janice they really did their their shit they really researched it. I mean, it's hard not to be biased when the guy that you're writing about is your grandfather. I grant you that. If mm. you read the book and you come out going, oh, it's a bit skewed. It's like, well, they're writing about their grandfather, but it is amazingly researched. They go through, there's like things that I didn't cover that they went through in vigorous detail. Yeah. Um, and even just learning about. The detail about, level of this book is insane. Yeah. Every time it's like something happened at 7.30 p.m., there's. 5,000 other bits of information like corroborating I, it. I relate this to the work that was done on the keepers, like those ladies in Baltimore yeah. working on the case of um, Sister Kathy. Like these women had time and they wanted to give their grandfather a voice and I really appreciate that. And it is a really interesting book if you want to learn about um, – old-timey Brisbane it was really interesting for me to learn about the St Lucia Tawong area I lived there briefly and you know it's a it's a very different area because it was mainly middle class back then but it's a very rich wealthy area like um Reginald Brown's family home is like Gleneva it's this rolling um uh Queenslander it's huge so it was really interesting to learn about that yeah. aspect of my history that I didn't really know about. It's so a great I really book, appreciated it. very confusing case. I don't know what I think. I'd love to be able to be like, yeah, 100% he did it, but I just don't I know. I just don't know. I probably lean towards guilty. I feel like yeah. you probably lean towards innocent a little bit more. Me? No, I I feel I feel for him mainly. I, I, I empathize with him because I feel like he didn't get a good go, but I think he might have done it. I think he might have done it. But you, you would just never ever you, be able to get a fair trial on those. The only person that we can, we would be able to ask is not God here. and God. But is he here? We'll leave you with that. We'll leave you with that. Um, thank you so much for joining us for our third episode of. 
Uh-huh. Uh, we're going to have a bonus episode. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, we're going to be having a bonus episode this week. Um, for those that don't know, uh, a young woman in Melbourne was brutally murdered last Tuesday night. Um, her name was Eurydice Dixon. And I don't know about you, but I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. All kinds of fucked up. Um, uh, there's been a lot of discussion in the media and in the community basically of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be safe. So we would like to delve into that and we also want to talk a little bit about Eurydice because mm. she seemed like a great gal. Mm. Um, so to all our lady loves out there, we hope you feel good and we hope you feel safe and we are in the same boat with you. Um, I definitely sobbed at Lisa Wilkinson talking about it because all hail Kent Queen Lisa. Yeah, never thought I'd cry watching The Project. No, but... but um, yeah, so we're going to come to you with that this week as well. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, uh, my name's Jess. My name's Alan. Make sure you rate and review uh, Murder in the Land of Oz. Feel free to follow us on Instagram and also on Facebook. Please feel free to send us an email at mitloopodcast at gmail.com. Um, if you have any creepy hometown murders or if you have any, like if you have any facts about um, Reginald Brown or the Alison Baden Clay case, uh, thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>